So the least thing I thought I could do since pastor's not here is tell a little dad joke as a tribute to Bob. (laughs) So a man was wandering through the woods pondering the questions of life, the universe and his own personal problems. The man could not find any answers, so he sought help from God. God, God, are you there? He shouted. I have a few questions. Mind if I ask? Go right ahead, my son. Ask anything, God said. God, what is a million years to you? God said, son, a million years to me is a second. Hmm, he wondered. Then he asked again, God, what is a million dollars worth to you? God said, a million dollars to me is a penny. Being the man, the man lifted his eyebrows and said, God can have a penny. And God's response was, yes, in a second. (laughs) Not the best, but it'll work for a dad joke, so it's okay. Before we get into John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44, I thought I'd do a little summary of kind of what's going on, where we're at, and then we'll jump right into the verses. In John 10, Jesus has attended the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. It was there that Jesus talked with the religious elite about the eternal security of his followers, since he is their good shepherd. It was also there that Jesus claimed his deity and said, I and the Father are one. As you might imagine, that did not go over well with the Jews who then tried to stone him. So Jesus retreated from Jerusalem and went into the wilderness east of the Jordan River, where John the Baptist had previously ministered. By now, Herod Antipas had killed John, leaving his disciples without a leader. Jesus ministered to John's disciples there for an unknown length of time. And as he traveled to Perea, or perhaps Galilee, all we know for certain is that Jesus was more than a day's walk from Bethany, the home of his friends Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, just two miles east of Jerusalem. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was not our Lord's last miracle before the cross. It was certainly His greatest and one that aroused the most response both from His friends and His enemies. John selected this miracle as the seventh in a series recorded in this book because it was really the climactic miracle of our Lord's earthly ministry. He had raised others from the dead, but Lazarus had been in that grave four days It was a miracle that could not be denied or avoided by the Jewish leaders. If Jesus Christ could do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do amounts to nothing. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Death is man's last enemy. But Jesus Christ did defeat this horrible enemy totally and permanently. The emphasis in John 11 is on faith. You find some form of the word believe at least eight times in this account. Another theme could be the glory of God. Another theme could be come forth. And what Jesus said and did, he sought to strengthen not only those around him, but our faith as well as we read this. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 11. We're going to start in verses 1 through 3. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. One day a messenger arrived with sad news that our Lord's dear friend Lazarus was sick. It was the man, if the man had traveled quickly, without any delay, he could have made the trip in about one day. Jesus sent him back the next day with the encouraging message we find in verse 4. Then Jesus waited two more days before he left for Bethany, and by the time he and his disciples arrived, Lazarus had been dead four days. This means that Lazarus died the day the messenger left. As you study the Gospel of John, you can clearly see how John chose to record at least seven miracles throughout this book that prove that Jesus was not only the Christ, the Messiah, but the Son of God. Seven miracles to prove and produce faith in not only those around, but us as readers. In the first six, you can see his power over physical aspects of life, including the human body, the natural elements of time and space, and even food and drink. But in each case, Jesus also demonstrated that his purpose went beyond the physical to the spiritual. Now the Lord revealed his power by reaching beyond this life and touching death and the afterlife, territory that belongs only to God. Death is not a natural extension of life. Though many psychologists and philanthropists argue this, death is an enemy created as a result of sin and ultimately to be destroyed by God. In fact, the perfume anointing described in verse 2 is further developed in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark 14. Although John mentions it just to identify the relationship among these sisters and their brother and Jesus, sometimes the Lord's ways are hard to understand. Imagine the disciples listening to Jesus as he observed casually that the sickness would not end in death and then lingering around a few more days before heading to Bethany. Though he had not yet recorded the story of the foot washing, John assumed his readers must have heard it. Perhaps the story floated around many early Christians in the first century. And after the message from Bethany immediately tipped the Lord's close relationship to this family, Lord, the one you love is sick. Here John used the common phileo, then switched to agapo in verse 5. Notice there was no request among friends. Requests are not always needed. Lord, the, loved one, the one you love is sick. The messenger didn't even have to say Lazarus' name. The sisters had seen Jesus heal many, so I, they assume he would do something about it. When the messenger arrived back home, he would find Lazarus already dead. What would his message convey to the grieving sister now that their brother was already dead and buried? Jesus was urging them to believe his word no matter how discouraging the circumstances might appear. No doubt the disciples were perplexed about several matters. First of all, if Jesus loved Lazarus so much, why did he permit him to get sick? Even more, why did he delay to go to the sisters? And for that matter, could he not have healed Lazarus at a distance as he did the nobleman's son? The record makes it clear that there was a strong love relationship between Jesus and this family. Yet our Lord's behavior to us would seem opposite of that. 
God's love for His own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that He loves us and we love Him is no guarantee that we'll be sheltered from the problems and pains of this life. After all, the Father loves His Son, and yet the Father permitted His beloved Son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite us in Christ Jesus. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness or even healed it from where he was, but he chose not to. He saw in the sickness an opportunity to glorify the Father. It is not important that we Christians are comfortable, but it is important that we glorify God in all that we do. Let's continue in verses 4-6. through six. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Even as we read this passage, we wonder about God being glorified through sickness. The strong point of verse 4. Of course, God was glorified through Jesus' resurrection, but He was also glorified through that death. Any crisis, any hardship that brings glory to God is good. If God is glorified in illness, it is good, as difficult and as hard as this is for our human minds to grasp. The Lord's words, this sickness will not end in death shows us how much more deeply he was thinking than the disciples. They could never have imagined that Lazarus' physical death would end and he would actually walk out of the grave after four days. How was God glorified in this life and death event? Certainly through the resurrection, but also in the death. The faith and hope that Lazarus' death evoked in the sisters occupies a significant portion of this chapter alone. It appears that the four days that pass between the death and the raising of Lazarus find their starting point just before the Lord left for Bethany. That allows two days after the original message for the intended delay and two days for the trip. But we ask, the trip from where? We simply do not know. The end of chapter 10 places Jesus and his disciples in and around Transjordan, and that may have been their location at the beginning of this chapter, we're not really sure. The author, <clears throat> the author Carson explains it this way. This is why, therefore, verse 6 contributes to the flow of the argument Lazarus's illness will not finally issue in death. It is for the glory of God. That does not mean Jesus is indifferent to human suffering. Far from it. Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Indeed, it is in this consequence of that love he delays his departure by two days, waiting for the divine signal, the news of Lazarus' death before he sets out on a four-day journey. For this delay will make a substantial contribution to the strengthening of the faith of the Bethany family and us as the readers as well. There was a purpose for that sickness. John provided his own commentary in verse 5 as its spot one might think Jesus did not love Lazarus because he does, does what? He waits. 
What about our Lord's delay? He was not waiting for Lazarus to die, for he was already dead. Jesus lived on a divine timetable, and he was waiting for the Father to tell them when to go. The fact that the man had been dead four days gave greater authenticity and greater opportunity for people to believe, including his own disciples. Let's continue with verses 7 through 10. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were now just seeking to stone you, and you were going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. The Lord and his disciples had probably been in and around the Transjordan area and had some distance to walk back to Bethany, which was in the northeastern part of Judea. Death threats awaited there, and the disciples had serious reservations about the trip. Verse 9 and 10 represent the Lord's answer. Though it does not seem to fit the context, perhaps it could have been a proverb of the time, meaning duty is more important than haste. For the Jews, the 12 hours of daylight would have been from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And perhaps Jesus has emphasized that we have a full 12 hours, but no more. Each valuable hour should be used to glorify God. Both Romans and Jews calculated time in 12-hour blocks, and work was done during the daylight. The interesting expression, this world's light, obviously refers to sunlight. But John may have intended a veiled reference to working in the S-O-N, the sunshine. That time which the Father had allowed Jesus to be on earth. The author Ed Bloom suggests this. In one sense, he was speaking of walking, living in physical light or darkness. In the spiritual realm, when one lives by the will of God, he is safe. Living in the realm of evil is dangerous. As long as we follow God's plan, no harm would come until the appointed time. Let's continue with verses 11 through 13. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Jesus returned to the subject at hand and used a common New Testament euphemism for death, the word sleep. We see this again and again at the end of Acts 7 in the martyrdom of Stephen. The author Gangrel suggests this, sleep is a common New Testament euphemism for death. It translates the Greek word probably going to butcher this, a coimeth, from which we construct the English noun cemetery. A cemetery, supposedly fearsome and spooky, affords a Christian word of faith. Christians who die are not gone. They are asleep temporarily until Jesus wakes them up. That sleep, of course, does not mean cessation of existence or awareness because we learn later in Paul's writing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I need to take a drink before I continue. 
Let's continue with verses 14 through 16. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. After having told them that this sickness would not end in death, Jesus then clearly said, Lazarus is dead. The disciples did not pick up on the word sleep and its connection with death. Not only that, but we learn the delay that allowed the death of his friend would work for the benefit of Jesus' disciples. They were on their way south to Bethany. This trip would have probably taken them through Jerusalem. Thomas, called Didymus, offered the pessimistic cry of the martyr complex, Let us also go, that we may die with him. What futility, they must have thought. Lazarus is already dead. Why put our own lives in jeopardy since we can't help him now? In the view of Thomas, all of them, including Jesus, would be dead before the trip was over. Thomas entered the narrative of John three times, and in each case in somewhat negative reference. In fact, the word Didymus means twin, not doubters, if son has surmised. Although we know nothing about his sibling, indeed, the name Thomas is the Hebrew word for twin, one can almost hear the sign of futility, the complete ignorance of substitutionary atonement and resurrection victory. Some interpreters make much more of Thomas's loyalty on the occasion. Let me cite the author Tenney's positive stance. He observes that Thomas, along with the other disciples, certainly understood their faith. Fate was questionable, and their lives were in jeopardy. <clears throat> but notwithstanding this unhappy prospect, Thomas's loyalty is revealed by his readiness to share Jesus's peril. The skepticism that Thomas later invents regarding the resurrection was probably prompted by the grief over Jesus' death rather than by the delusionment because of apparent failure. Again, for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Jesus did not immediately help the one he loved on purpose. Jesus created a so that so we could carry hope into our future. Let me continue with verses 17 through 20. So when Jesus came... He found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Their arrival in Bethany occurred at least four days later. In the cultural ostentation of Jewish funerals, the mourners... The spices and the processions still lingered. This was a popular family in a small town of Bethany. So Lazarus's funeral was probably considered a major event. But none of the Lord's followers, not the disciples, not the sisters, yet understood how Jesus is our life as he was to Martha. <clears throat> in John, we have seen the term Jews in a negative reference used to refer to the Pharisees and assorted religious opponents of Jesus. Here it takes on the general ethnic designation, the adjective many 
may suggest some influence of Lazarus in the small community of Bethany. The text of verse 20 literally tells us that Mary stayed seated in the house. The author Borchette enlightens this interesting and more literal translation of the text. The custom was for the bereaved to remain seated in the house and for the guests to come, sit in silence, and periodically support the grieving parties with sympathetic tears and moans. Moreover, one must not forget that this was the brother, the obvious wage earner, who had died. The loss was an intense one. Let me continue. Verses 21 through 24. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Here we have one of the greatest conversations of the Bible. We already know the personalities of these women, so we are not surprised that Martha charged out to meet Jesus while Mary stayed at home. Her words to the Lord almost take the form of a mild rebuke. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yet she hinted at resurrection by adding, God will give you whatever you ask. Knowing her faith, Jesus responded, Your brother will rise again. Martha recited the standard Old Testament view of the resurrection, not practicing the promises Jesus had taught so often. Surely she knew about the resurrection of the widow's son and and others, but somehow she never made the connection that the Lord could do the same for her brother. Martha, Mary, and all the Jewish mourners responded in human fashion to death and sorrow, defeat, and abandonment. According to their words, Jesus should have been there to prevent Lazarus' death. If he were really God, he would have prevented physical death because that's God's job. They treated death as the end of life, as the final defeat, a sign that God had deserted them. The presence of death meant the absence of God. Martha could never have accepted the view of the Sadducees that denied the resurrection. She sided more with the more conservative Pharisaic view that prevailed among the common people. Martha had no more hope than she had before Jesus arrived on the scene, but that was about to change dramatically. Let's continue with verses 25 through 27. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What follows is the wonderful promise almost every single Christian has memorized. A passage used as Christian funerals for nearly 2,000 years. It forms the key to the chapter. But what does it mean? Jesus said, He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Does that mean spiritual life beyond the grave, as many interpreters have suggested? The context seems to demand an emphasis on physical death 
and physical life. In other words, bodily resurrection. Verse 26 seems to indicate that whoever is still alive and believing at the time of the Lord's return will never die. Martha did not grasp the entirety of this theology, but nevertheless placed her foothold of faith directly in Jesus, his affirmation of him as the Messiah. She was not completely without faith. She still believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that he might still be able to do something, although she did not know really know what it could be. She understood only two categories of life. Physical life on earth, and some future life at a resurrection. In her mind, Lazarus had neither of those at the moment. She did not think there was anything Jesus could do about this death. The key to the chapter and the foundation stone of the doctrine of resurrection and the afterlife appear in these beloved verses. This is another one of the Lord's I am statements in the gospel. Jesus said future resurrection was impossible without him. Martha, as well as Lazarus, had no hope without him in the picture. He also said that real life, life that extends beyond death, had no hope without him. It is possible only through him. A person attains it no other way. This is life both spiritual, we live even though we may die, and eternal, we'll never die. And it comes only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Martha's affirmation of Jesus affirmed that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore the Son of God and also that he was sent into the world by the Father himself. A fact that he had been arguing in public for more than three years. The author Whitmere explains it this way. The title Son of God was first applied to Jesus by the angel Gabriel himself in his announcement to the Virgin Mary, explaining that her conception would be by the Holy Spirit. He said that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. John the Baptist, after witnessing the descent of the Holy Spirit on Jesus at his baptism by John himself, said, I testify that this is the Son of God. This was also a confession of Nathaniel, of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, and of Mary, and of Peter, spokesman for the disciples. When the earthquake occurred at Jesus' crucifixion, the centurion and soldiers who carried out the execution were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. It appears to the casual reader that Martha had climbed on board theologically and would no longer have any question about what Jesus could do. Yet a few minutes later, she heard Jesus call for the removal of the stone and objected. But Lord, by this time there will be a bad odor, for he has been there four days. So again, Martha reminds us of ourselves. A willingness to verbally proclaim biblical truth without applying it in our own lives. Knowing and doing are two totally different things. The author Borcher again reminds us this. This story thus serves as a significant warning even to evangelicals who may be able to mouth all the correct theological statements about Jesus, but have actually failed to bring words and life together. 
It is not enough to make statements about Jesus. Indeed, if a person would make a statement akin to Martha's in some churches, the tendency would be baptize them, get them in the church. But we must all be warned that verbal confessions and life commitments are not always partners with one another. Let's continue with verses 28 through 32. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Presumably, verse 28 contains an unrecorded invitation delivered personally at the request of Jesus. So Mary went outside the city with others, following her, assuming she was headed for the tomb. How interesting that her opening line was identical to Martha's, although she had not heard Martha speak, and there seems no way to be an indication in the text that these women had discussed their reaction to the Lord, In fact, we have no idea where Mary met Jesus other than that he was at the same place and had not entered the village. We dare not miss John's notation that the Jews who had been with her in the house followed her, so Mary's conversation with Jesus was not like Martha's in private. There are other differences. Martha engaged in theological debate. Mary fell at his feet. Martha expressed expectant faith. God will give you whatever you ask. Mary functioned at a more personal level. Let's continue with verses 33 through 37. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The Greek word for deeply moved in spirit is embromaomai, I believe, used five times in the New Testament. Always of Jesus. Matthew 9.30, Mark 1.43, Mark 14.5, John 11.33, and John 11.38. It probably suggests anger over sin and death which could cause such agony in Mary, Martha, and their friends in Bethany. The second word, troubled, translates etargaxin. It seems to emphasize agitation, again perhaps over the grief of the sisters. Of the phrase, deeply moved in spirit, the author Carson suggests this. It does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but is a rough equivalent to in himself. His inward reaction was of anger or outrage or indignation. 
it, it, it's inexcusable to reduce this emotion upset to the efforts, effects of empathy, grief, and of the like. When, Car- when uh, Jesus approached the tomb, he could no longer tr- control himself and wept. John used a different word than the word he chose to describe the weeping of Mary and the Jews. Perhaps the intent was to show that Jesus' tears emerged for a different reason. Not grief over Lazarus. He had that situation well in hand. Surely the same unbelief and theological ignorance that prompted his anger and produced grief. This response to the death of Lazarus on the part of Jesus is very contrary to the Greek idea of God's, but much, very much like the promise of the Messiah of the Old Testament. The question of the group in verse 37 seems fair enough, but it has an obvious answer. Jesus could have kept this man from dying, but he chose not to for reasons he had already explained to his disciples earlier in the chapter. I read a story about a young boy who was sent by his mom to the corner store to buy a loaf of bread. He was gone much longer than he should have been. And when he finally returned, his mother asked, Son, where have you been? I've been worried sick about you. Well, he answered, there was a little boy with a broken tricycle who was crying, so I stopped and helped him. The mom said, I didn't know you could fix tricycles. The boy said, I can't. I just stood there and cried with him. You don't have to be good with words. Just being there to share someone's pain and grief will be more appreciated than you'll ever know. This is what Jesus does for us. Jesus wept is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. So many times our society says crying is a weakness, especially in men. Yet here we see the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and a man's real man weeping. Jesus enters into our pain even though he says sometimes, I know. Jesus wept is also the shortest verse in the Bible, yet also one of the deepest. His was a silent weeping and not the loud lamentation of the mourners. But why did he weep at all? After all, he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. Our Lord's weeping reveals the humanity of the Savior. He has entered into all all of our experiences and knows how we feel. In fact, being the perfect God-man, Jesus experienced these things in a deeper way than we could ever know. His tears also assure us of His sympathy. He is indeed a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Today, He is our merciful and faithful High Priest. And we may come to the throne of grace and find all the gracious help that we need. Let's continue with verses 38 through 40. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by, the time, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The emotional intensity deepened as Jesus approached the tomb, deeply moved. This tombstone was probably four or five feet in diameter and several inches thick. Since Martha had raised the protest, 
the response of verse 40 may be directed primarily at her, though it certainly established a general principle, one that we have repeatedly observed throughout the gospel, believing is seeing. We might also include that Jesus was speaking to the disciples, since to them he had said, This sickness is for the glory, is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So the sisters in their grief, the disciples in their bewilderment, and to all those who seek faith at any age since this dramatic event, Jesus calls for faith first, sight later. Trust me, and I promise you guys it's worth this. Let's continue with verses 41 and 42. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. The power of Jesus is also seen in this prayer. These words must have been uttered audibly and publicly. The purpose of the prayer was to create faith in the hearts of those standing around the tomb of Lazarus, wondering what would happen next. Here we get a glimpse into the relationship of the Trinity, particularly the Father-Son relationship with the Godhead that John dealt with so frequently in the Gospel. All three of Jesus' prayers recorded in John call upon the Father to support the mission on which He had been sent. The author, Borchert, again points out, unlike the other prayers, however, this prayer focused on thanksgiving and is not unlike the formal formula prayers found in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the prayer shows us that Jesus knew the Father's will concerning Lazarus and he was about to do what he was about to do would not be, merely be for the sake of Lazarus and those around but for us as well. The prayer thus from, was not primarily for his benefit, but it was aimed at bringing the observers into the group of believers. What exactly did Jesus mean when he said to the Father, I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. This public gesture of looking up and speaking aloud was unnecessary since the Father always hears the Son and responds. But Jesus' mission was to bring people to faith and John was mission-focused throughout this entire book. The unbelieving crowd of mourners heard Jesus' rhetorical question of verse 40, watched Him, heard Him pray openly to the Father. We learn later that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in Him. Jesus involved people not only in watching and hearing, but in the miracle itself. Although it was Jesus alone who could bring the dead to life, He delighted in involving the bystanders in this miracle. First, they were told to move the stone. Then, after the miracle, they were told to unbind Lazarus. True, we cannot bring the dead to life, but we can bring the Word of Christ to them. We can do preparatory work, and we can do work after we can help to remove stones of ignorance, error, prejudice, and despair. In fact, after the miracle, 
the new Christians were unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. Let's finish it up with the last two verses. Verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound, hand and foot, with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Through this miracle, we also see that Jesus is our power. How interesting that John should tell us Jesus called out in a loud voice. For surely it was not necessary for that call to reach the ears of Lazarus. Perhaps he intended it for the crowd of mourners. No one present that day could possibly misunderstand what Jesus just did. This is one of the greatest dramatic scenes of the Bible, but we must be careful using the word resurrection to describe it. In one sense, Lazarus did experience resurrection because he came back from the dead. But again, New Testament resurrection usually refers to the return of to life in a state of immortality so that one never dies again. That was the pattern of the resurrection of Jesus of course, but not that of Lazarus, who would die again. Yet the word resurrection used by some commentators, the word resuscitation, sorry, used by some commentators, seems insufficient. Let us just recognize the limitations of resurrection performed in this biblical encounter. The Greek word rendered here, called out in a loud voice, ekragoxen, appears only nine times in the New Testament. Eight of them in the Gospels. No Hollywood depiction of this event could possibly capture the drama of what actually happened that day as Lazarus stumbled and staggered into the sun while wearing grave clothes. Again, the author, Borchette, describes what he looked like. A long, narrow sheet folded in half, the body inserted in between the folds, then wrapped, was bound together, and the body secured. The head wrapped separately, which explains the note both in the Lazarus situation and the separate head wrapping in the case of Jesus' grave's clothes. The emphasis from this point on was on the faith of the spectators, the people who had come to comfort Mary and Martha. Jesus paused to pray and thanked the Father that the prayer had already been heard. When he had prayed, probably when he had received the message that his friend was sick, The Father then told him what the plan was, and Jesus obeyed the Father's will. His prayer now was for the sake of the unbelieving spectators, that they might know that God sent him. I read many, many pastors, and they all seem to say that Jesus named Lazarus on purpose. He emphasized this so that he would not empty the whole cemetery by just saying, Arise. Jesus called Lazarus and raised him from the dead. Since Lazarus was bound, he could not walk to the door of the tomb, so God's power must have carried him along. It was an unquestioned miracle that even the most hostile spectators could not have denied. The existence of Lazarus is a good illustration of what happens to a sinner when he trusts the Savior. 
to be dead in sin and alive in Christ. Lazarus was dead, and all sinners are dead. He was decayed. He was decayed because death and decay go together. All lost people are spiritually dead, but some seem more decayed than others. No one, though, can be more dead than another. Lazarus was raised from the dead by the power of God and all who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Christ had been given new life and lifted out of the graveyard of sin. Lazarus was set free from the grave clothes and given new liberty. You find him seated with Christ at the table and all believers seated with Christ in heavenly places enjoying spiritual food and fellowship. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you were with me. I thank you for this message. I thank you that we apply it. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, this can be their Lazarus moment, Father, that they could come forth. They can come to know you. That they will be delivered from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. Father God, I pray that maybe that someone's even listening to this, maybe in a car, in an office, or at home, if they don't know you, that they will hear these words that Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Your word says it. If we confess our sins, we are, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe you don't know how to accept the Lord. Maybe you don't know the words to say. Maybe you feel you're too far gone. You've created too many sins in your life. Well, Jesus knows them all and He knows the ones you're not even going to do and He's forgiven them all. If you don't know Him, these words can help you. Let me guide you. Just simply say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. I know I'm a sinner, but I've heard you calling. I felt you knocking on my heart. Lord Jesus, come into my life. I make you my Lord and Savior. I put you in charge. I love you. I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for this Lazarus moment. Let me not forget it. Let me share it. I ask this and I pray this in Jesus' name. Father God, I just thank you again so much. I pray that anybody that prayed that, Lord, will come and know that they are now saved. They're walking with you. Guide them to a good church. Guide them to your word and fellowship with believers. Father God, bless the rest of this day. We give you praise and we thank you for all the mothers and women of faith that have been in our life. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. I don't know how I can emphasize this enough, but Jesus is life. He is truth. He is the definition. That's how the Webster Dictionary should say it. It should say, Jesus, truth, life. If you're here and you don't know the Lord, I would love to share it with you. I asked Larry to play a song that he played during Easter. It just is a, it's this beautiful, beautiful song. Please, if you know the words, feel free to sing along. If you're here and you need prayer, feel free to come up. If you need a hug, feel free to come up. I'll gladly do it.